0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: You've downloaded the podcast of NewsHour Extra, one hour on one subject every week. And this week, a really fascinating topic of de-extinction. And to explain what it is, here's producer Robin Banerjee. Well, I think we all know what extinction is. That's when an animal or species of animals
2: is dead. There aren't any more of them alive. So de-extinction is when we can bring them back to life. And the amazing thing is that some people think it's now possible.
1: Right. So so there's the possibility of doing it through genetic engineering. So genetic engineering, cloning, and sort of more good old-fashioned breeding them back, recreating the animal like it was before. Right. And so the technologies are, are advancing, which, as ever, brings on the ethics. Uh, should we be doing this? We'll, we'll be talking about that too. Well, exactly, because it's not just a question of wouldn't it be cool to have a wooden mammoth or whatever it is. The question is also where would such a creature live and what effects would it have on the animals that are already
0: alive? Is the attempt at de-extinction likely to mean that we're not going to take the
2: animals that are alive at the moment so seriously or that their extinction will somehow be thought to be not such a problem? So there's lots of issues.
1: I'm joined by a crack team on this. We've got Helen Pilcher, author of Bring Back the King, The New Science of De-Extinction. She joins us uh, from Dorset in the west of England where she tells me she's on holiday with her children looking for fossils, very appropriately. We have Carl Zimmer, who's a columnist for The New York Times and often writes for the National Geographic magazine where he wrote a big feature about de-extinction. He's in New Haven. We've got Professor Richard Grenier, Associate Professor in Biodiversity and Biogeography at Oxford University and in Santa Cruz, California, Ben Novak, a scientist with the Revive and Restore charity. It is promoting de-extinction and we'll talk more about that later on. And before sort of getting into this, i just say that in the first half of the programme we're going to try and talk about what we can do and what we will be able to do shortly. In other words, just what is possible and then in the second half of the programme, we'll try and get onto to the ethics and the morality of it. What should we do? So just your opening sort of statement on what we can do now and what's becoming realistic. Helen Pilcher, why don't you start us off?
0: OK, well, I think a very important point to make is that de-extinction is very much a science that's in development. There has been one animal brought back from extinction briefly, which I think we're going to talk about later we're not about to have a herd of woolly mammoths stampeding across the Siberian plains anytime soon but the science is in development with people like Ben at the forefront and I think in time it will become possible.
1: Ben Novak that's a good introduction
3: to you what do you think in general terms is becoming possible? I would say that on the uh, the engineering front of de-extinction things like the mammoth and the passenger pigeon that it's in my mind, completely possible that we're within the 10 to 15 year range of seeing the first organisms. And as Helen pointed out, you know, once you get your first breeding organisms, you're a little ways away from having a herd of animals on the landscape. But uh, we're within the 20 to 30 range of having restored extinct proxies on the landscape.
1: That is an amazing suggestion and claim. Carl Zimmer,
4: you're uh, based in New Haven now, Do you agree with it? Well, you know, we science writers always like to say that the really exciting stuff is going to happen in 10 or 20 years, because I guess that's when we're going to retire and no one can hold us to it. Um, I would say it's maybe within a generation it, it might be possible. What's really exciting to me is is that the underlying scientific techniques that de-extinction uh, researchers are, are, are taking up are... are evolving with incredible speed, um, whether it's sequencing DNA or uh, manufacturing DNA or manipulating cells. And that's going to have a huge application all across the board, whether de-extinction really starts bringing back animals or not.
1: And Professor Grenier in Oxford, just to talk through those techniques... There's cloning, which, and I, we've got an example of that coming up. There's sort of backbreeding where you try to breed in traditional ways but bringing out older features of animals, if you like. And then there's CRISPR, which is gene editing. Does that summarise the, the scope of it? Oh yes, I think so. Those are uh,
5: a nice summary of, of, of the techniques. My interest uh, very much is is in um, the consequences of those techniques. I'm hugely excited about what technology can do for conservation, for ecology, for our understanding of the natural world and, and for its management. I'm mildly to utterly worried about the way in which we get there.
1: Right, okay. Well, and that particularly will come up in the second half of the programme. Absolutely. Your, your utter worry we will hear about and
5: And my my mild worry and huge (laughs) excitement as well.
1: Okay, yes. Let's just hear from this example which Helen just sort of previewed, which is this one case where a species has been brought back to life. It did happen for a few minutes. And the man who did it was the Spanish scientist Alberto Fernandez Arias. The animal he brought back to life is a bucado, and that is a kind of wild goat that lived in the Pyrenees Mountains on the Spanish-French border and I spoke to him earlier today. When did the Bucado goat become extinct?
2: The Bucado became extinct on the 7th of January of 2000, when it was crushed by a fallen tree.
1: Right, and that was the last one alive?
2: That was the last one, yes. It was called Celia. It was a female, an old female, of 14 years old.
1: And you had taken the precaution of getting some cells from the the last surviving bucados and, and freezing them, right?
2: That's right. Ten months before, we were allowed to capture the last bucado that was alive at that moment in Ordesa National Park in the Pyrenees Mountains to take skin biopsies and to froze the cells so in the future could be cloned and also to put a radio tracking collar to see the movements of the animals and also to inform us if the animals uh, died, what was the case 10 months later.
1: And so these live cells enable you to clone, and you tried to clone it?
2: Yeah, we tried to clone it in 2003. The team where I worked in the Cita Aragon, we got uh, 154 cloned embryos, which were transferred in different numbers to Spanish ibex and, and mainly to hybrids, uh, hybrids of ibex and domestic goats, the the hybrid females, I discovered uh, several years years before when I was doing my PhD, I discovered that they were very, very good uterus to get pregnant of of Spanish ibex. And we were monitoring the the gestation by ultrasonography, and then we decided to do a caesarean section and we got the, the little ibex on the 30th of July of uh, 2003. And that was the first time I- in the world uh, that uh, an extinct species went back to, to life. And But the problem was that that little kid, it was a female kid, for, of course, uh, that little kid had um, a, a problem in the lung. So in, let's say, 10 minutes or, or something more, the, the little kid died and, and the Bucardo became extinct uh, once more.
1: That's right, it's been twice extinct. Uh, yes. Well, it's amazing research and you are the only man who has brought a species back to life.
2: Well, we, we were a big team.
1: Yes, I'm sure. But know, not, know. Nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. We
2: were a big team, a very well-trained team.
1: Have you read Frankenstein?
2: I haven't. <laughs> okay. I have read many other books, <laughs> but this this is not Frankenstein. This this was just trying to to get back what was uh, once in the in the mountains.
1: And that was Alberto Fernandez Arias, right? Ben Novak. Now then, I would just like you to compare what your plans are for the passenger pigeon with what that Spanish scientist did. So, first of all, I think it would help. What what was the passenger pigeon?
3: Well, the passenger pigeon was a native species of pigeon here in the United States and Canada, the eastern parts of uh, forested North America, and it was its claim to fame is that it was once the most abundant bird species here in North America and possibly the world. And it went extinct in the late 1800s due to commercial harvest and potentially deforestation and by 1902 the last ones were shot in the wild and the last one died in a zoo in 1914.
1: So Alberto Fernandez Arias with his Bucardo goat he 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 got one before it died got some live cells preserved them and that's where he's working from cloning from there obviously you can't do that so what what could you do?
3: So what we can do is we can take a living pigeon Uh, The band-tailed pigeon here in California is actually the closest relative and a a very nice ecological proxy for the passenger pigeon. And much like selective breeding, we can use the genome editing technologies of, say, CRISPR-Cas9 or talons to introduce the traits into the band-tailed pigeon's genome that would allow that bird to occupy the unique ecological niche of the passenger pigeon. And that's the the overall sum of the project. And it's fundamentally different from what Alberto did. And personally, I myself would say that the cloning aspect of what people say is de-extinction is not de-extinction at all. It's actually just an extreme form of recovery because if we think about it, when someone clones from a living cell line, and that's, that's the point here, is the Bucardo cells are still alive in a Petri dish. There's no Bucardo, but they're still alive. When you clone that, it's an actual continuation of a lineage, whereas when we select the traits and recreate a passenger pigeon, we're we're stemming that off of a lineage of band-tailed pigeon, and it's, it's in effect uh, more of a hybrid than an actual passenger pigeon.
1: I see the distinction you're making, but it, just to understand what you're doing, how would you get the DNA, is it, or the cells of a passenger pigeon to know what you're aiming
3: at well getting the dna from a passenger pigeon is is the easiest part if people go over to oxford's museum or or over to london they've got passenger pigeons in their collections and any stuffed passenger pigeon from the 1800s we can take a little piece of tissue from the feet and in you know less than two weeks we can have the entire genome of that animal uh, sequenced over, and then the complicated part from there is is selecting which alleles of genes matter to make a passenger pigeon and editing those into the cells of a living band-tailed pigeon. That's a that's a very complicated matter. That's that's what's in the emerging, developing science right now, and that's the CRISPR technology. It's
1: sort of gene editing.
3: Yes, CRISPR allows us to target a specific site in the band-tailed pigeon genome say, a a gene for color or a gene for behavior. And it allows us to make a cut in the DNA so that we can cut out the band-tailed pigeon version of that gene and introduce in the passenger pigeon version. And this is very different from the, the transgenics of the 90s and early 2000s, in which they were cutting and splicing in DNA, in which the old version of the gene and the new version of the gene would have been then side by side. We're actually cutting out and repasting in. So it's it's fundamentally rewriting the genetic code.
4: This is Carl. Um, I think there's a, an important point here that listeners may not appreciate, which is that you can get the entire, let's say, passenger pigeon genome and have those billions of letters in front of you, which is an incredible achievement. And what, what Ben and his colleagues are doing is fascinating and incredibly important, it's just pure scientific research. But just having those letters doesn't actually tell you what those letters are doing or what makes a passenger pigeon a passenger pigeon as opposed to a band tail pigeon or some other kind of pigeon. And when we talk about, say, a particular kind of behavior, and Ben can tell you about all the interesting ways that passenger pigeons are believed to have behaved— there are lots of different genes that were influencing each of those behaviors, uh, you know, and there are also parts of DNA that you can think of as switches that would switch genes on and off that would behave differently as well. And so a huge challenge in this kind of de-extinction is actually trying to make sense of genomes, which is actually really, really hard for the most part.
1: So, so Carl Zimmer, just to understand that point more fully, and then, then we'll ask others to come in on it, are you saying, you know, you could, you can get the, the DNA, and you could even, let's say, do all the science and it works brilliantly, and you recreate this passenger pigeon. But is it a passenger pigeon if it doesn't know how to behave like one because it hasn't got a, a mummy and daddy passenger pigeon to tell them?
4: Not exactly. So, so the 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 plan that Ben and his colleagues have in mind is basically to start with the the genome of an existing species. In his case, uh, you know, another species of, of pigeon, closely related. And then to just basically go in and edit small parts of that DNA to make it like a passenger pigeon was. To say, like, okay, well, we've identified this element in the passenger pigeon genome, and that's important for color. You know, like the color on their feathers. So we're going to move that in. That matters. And we're going to take, you know, this other section here. That matters a lot. We're going to put that in as well. And so basically what you would have is you would have a, a modified genome modified from a living species of pigeon to function like that of a yes. passenger pigeon you know you're not resurrecting a passenger pigeon in full with the with the complete genome where that, that technology ben is Novak, not there
1: but Ben Novak presumably you only need to change one or two percent of a, a what was it a, a another sort of mo- living pigeon to get back to the passenger pigeon don't you they'll be quite similar you won't have to change that much of it
3: well, yeah, in essence, uh, but uh, you know, Carl's point is very, uh, very important about this being, you know, an emerging science of discovery, and the fact that we we know that passenger pigeons are social breeders and band tail pigeons are territorial breeders. We don't know what genes influence that, and so we have to discover those. And so when we look through the genome, uh, it's about three percent that's different between these two genomes, and that sounds like a small number. But that's in the the realm of 25 million mutations, and we can maybe do you know a few dozen of those at a time. And in evolutionary history, over the 12 million years that these birds have been evolving, our job is to do is sort out which of those are are noise accumulated from time versus which of those are what evolution has selected for in making a passenger pigeon. And there's a few different ways to go about that, but we're really looking for what are the top 10 or top 100 mutation changes not only in genes but also in the regulating uh, structural rnas uh, and the things that we really don't understand fully that we can we can make that territorial breeder a social breeder or say make an elephant live in siberia you know these these are the selected traits that we care about
1: but in that case i really do take carl zimmer's point that if you're not changing the full three percent that's different you're getting a new thing really
3: well, that's what I said earlier. Yeah, that's, so that's why this is so different from the the cloning approach. Whereas, you know, if someone has a living cell line and they clone, they're getting the same organism. Um, and people will argue that, oh, well, it's the epigenetics will be off, or the mitochondrial DNA is off, and that's but that's no different from raising an animal in captivity and releasing it to the wild, uh, which people do all the time in conservation. But when you engineer selected traits, your lineage starts with. With a living species, it does not start with your extinct one. And so it's the IUCN calls de-extinction the the formation of proxies for extinct species. And I think that's a a relatively good term because this, this all stems from a practice called ecological replacement where you replace an extinct species with one that can be a substitute and we're simply taking it to the next step of can we resurrect the traits that evolution worked on to make that extinct species ideal for the ecosystem to make the the best substitute possible
0: So see i think a key point that's worth making here and this builds on what carl and ben have both said is just to pull back for a moment When we're talking about de-extincting any animal, we will never be able to make an exact replica. The animal will always be different. It will be different at the level of the DNA. It will be different at the level of how that DNA is interpreted, how gene expression is different. And it will be different because these animals will be growing up in a different world to the one they experienced the first time round, with, in the first instance, surrogate parents perhaps of a similar but different species. So all of the scientists who are involved in de-extinction, if you listen to them carefully, they do, as Ben says, talk about proxies and hybrids and things that are similar. Uh, nobody is claiming that we can make an exact replica of the passenger well, pigeon, on. or the woolly mammoth even.
1: But, Helen, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you. In a sense, that, that Bucado, which was knocked off by a tree, was ki- yeah the last Bucado was killed by a tree, and... That scientist, if he had, which I think he did, the living cells of that Bucardo, and he then managed to recreate that clone successfully, he failed, but had he done it successfully, he would have recreated the species. Exactly the same. No,
0: not exactly. So there are two points here. One is that there are two different types of DNA inside a cell. One is the nuclear DNA, which is the main business machine inside this blob in the centre of the cell, and that is the DNA that is used for cloning. And then there's a much smaller source of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, which is found in these tiny structures called mitochondria, which are like mini batteries inside the cell. The cloned Bucardo, the de-extinct Bucardo, did not have the original Bucardo's mitochondrial DNA. Its DNA was different. And Alberto mentioned that he used a particular type of surrogate goat to nurture the embryo and carry it to term. And that was a hybrid goat. So its DNA was different. So the signals that that goat would have been delivering to the embryo will be subtly different to the ones that an original Bucardo would. So the patterns of gene expression would have been different. So if you want to be a pedant about it, you know, at the molecular level, it would have been different. Very, very similar, but slightly different. And we are all products of nature and nurture, of DNA and the environment we grow up in. And if we pull back for a moment, the environment, had it survived, that that Bucardo would have grown up in, initially in captivity and then released into the world maybe generations later, would have been different. So it's not the same animal. Very close, but not the same. But people argue, hey, if this looks, acts and behaves like the original animal, then where is the problem? And I go along with that argument, I think.
1: So so just finally, uh, in this first half of the programme, I would like someone to tell us about backbreeding. I don't know if, uh, Professor Grenier, you know about that. uh, We haven't heard from you for for a while. And and just a sort of, you know, we've heard the CRISPR, the gene editing, we've heard about the cloning... How would the back breeding work?
5: So back breeding is uh, simply an attempt to do using those same sorts of selective breeding, simply choosing which animal mates with with, with which other animal, which each individual animal makes mates with which individual animal, but instead of trying to make, for example, uh, a cow that requires less food per litre of milk, you actually in fact almost do the reverse. You try and select for. The characteristics of older, uh, either domesticated strains, or perhaps trying to get back to a form of a particular um, species at its pre-domesticated state. So if you wanted to make a mammoth, you would take the hairiest elephants that you find, maybe the elephants, individual elephants that are best in the cold, and you try and breed selectively from them, and see how many of those, if you like, hidden alleles within the uh, within the gene pool you can get to
1: re-express. Yes, and, and is anyone doing that? You know, in any with any animal.
5: Well, it, I mean, yes, there are. Um, there's been quite a long history of, of doing this with uh, with various breeds of cattle, particularly because. Um, <laughs> there was an attempt to get back to a, a primeval uh, form of cattle a, 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 a thing called the aurochs in uh, in which inhabited uh, europe in in, uh, in in prehistoric times um, with more or less success there were a lot of traits that have disappeared entirely from uh, from contemporary uh, cattle breeds and then you can't you can't get them back by by back breeding okay
0: there's another great project as well which uh, i'm sure the other the other guys are well aware of to bring back an animal called the quagga which was a really beautiful animal that looked a bit like a zebra, but it had a very dreary bottom, so it didn't have stripes on its backside. And it's a brilliant example of backbreeding, because to bring this animal, this quagga, back, they realised it is related to the living plains zebra. So they're doing uh, exactly as Richard said for the cattle, they're choosing the zebras that have the, the dreariest backsides and breeding them together until eventually they will end up with a quagga, which looks basically like a zebra where somebody's got bored of painting its stripes on halfway down its body. And that's what they're aiming for, and that's another example of of backbreeding and de-extinction that is happening now.
1: You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones, and this week we're looking at de-extinction and joined by Helen Pilcher, author of Bring Back the King, The New Science of De-extinction, Carl Zimmer, columnist for The New York Times, Richard Grenier from Oxford University and Ben Novak, a scientist who's particularly working on the project to revive and restore the passenger pigeon. We're going to talk about should you do this now. And I'm going to start with you, Richard Grenier, in Oxford, because you've got a lot of reservations. Tell us why you are anxious about this.
5: Whilst I have huge hopes for what we can do with this kind of technology... I am profoundly worried about the way in which we've already co-opted the words de-extinction into our discourse, into the, our lexicon of this of this subject, because I think, as, as we made really clear in the first half, what we're talking about here is absolutely not the end of extinction we're not talking and and uh, everyone's been very clear about this uh, everyone involved has been very clear that the end products of this process are not copies of a species of individuals of a species that has gone extinct what we're talking about is the creation of novelty this is not a heritage thing it's not about going back to revisit the past it's about making new tools, literally new living tools, for habitat management and for ecosystem management.
1: Okay, I do take that point, but let me put this to you. I mean, if the woolly mammoth you know, was recreated, and it's not a woolly mammoth exactly the same, mm-hmm. but it's, it's 99.9999% the same, then is the distinction you're making so important? And, and would you object to that?
5: Well, I think it is. First of all, I don't think within a meaningful time frame, within a generation's time frame, we're going to be talking about a resemblance that is uh, anything more than, I, I, I forget exactly what the number from the recent um, church study was, something in the Legion of 45 traits, I believe, was the target of which 15 had been achieved, something along those lines. Um, ben mentioned uh, around about 100, I think, potential insertions into the um, uh, edits to the, um, to the pigeon genome. We're a very long way away from ever being able to see a mammoth. What we are almost certainly going to see, I suspect, is a hairy elephant that is better at standing in the snow. That's a very, very different beast. And it's tremendously exciting. But it's not the end of extinction, and that's where the problem starts. And
1: and finally, before we turn this over to the others, uh, would you be in favour of creating a hairy elephant that's good at standing in the snow?
5: I think that there are loads of fantastic things we could do with this technology, but none of them, for me, must be called de-extinction, because it implies the end of a process which is fundamental to the arguments that we have as conservationists about how we want the world to be. And it's not de-extinction because it's not the end of extinction. If we relinquish that argument, we throw open a whole load of legal and other arguments which will result in some fairly catastrophic outcomes for the biodiversity that we already have so it's not a problem with the technology it's a problem with the framing
1: okay so helen pilcher i'm going to come to you now because your book has the word de-extinction in the title which i suspect professor grenier disapproves of so can you tell us why you use that word in your title
0: i do um well Because it is there, but that doesn't mean it's right. But let me tell you my take on this. I kind of, having thought about what it is possible to, in inverted commas, de-extinct, the conclusion I've come to is that some animals are more extinct than others, right? And this harks back to what Ben said. So some animals are lost forever. Dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. And although I might go looking for their fossils on beaches, I'm never going to be able to bring back a T-Rex or anything else. The DNA is too long gone. But... Where we have passenger pigeons in museums, where we have the cells of endangered species frozen in vats of liquid nitrogen, we have potential. Some of those species, like the Bucardo, might be gone, but are they truly extinct? They're kind of in this hinterland where we could maybe bring them back. And then you look at living species that are desperately endangered, that are on the brink of extinction. And the one I always come back to is... And I think this is after my dog, my favourite animal ever, the northern white rhino. Now, there are three northern white rhinos left on this planet, and that's a grandfather, a mother and a daughter. They live in a wildlife park in Kenya, and they are too old, too ill and too related to be able to breed naturally and produce offspring. So here we have a living species that is basically extinct, functionally extinct. So there are, if you like, maybe 50 shades of extinction. Okay, so de-extinction is maybe doing something with these creatures that need our help. And here's the crucial thing. If there is a good enough reason to do so, to help these animals recover. And Ben and I have sort of corresponded about this issue. And what's interesting is that we have these categories set by the IUCN. Terms like uh, endangered, critically Uh, endangered. But actually, we need some new categories here. IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they put together something called the Red List, which is basically a list of animals that are in trouble. So we hear terms like vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, and extinct in the wild, and we almost need another category now for something that is either still alive, but basically gone, or for something that has just gone, but could be brought back.
5: Could I just add to that, in fact in a previous iteration of the Red List, there used to be a category called lower risk but conservation dependent, which actually made that distinction. Okay, that was for uh, species which were on the edge of being threatened, but that that acknowledgement that some species depend on human actions for their current extinction risk status is one that's been around for a while.
1: What I'd like to do now is get some clarity on the benefits and the disadvantages of going down this route. So I'm not going to use the word extinction Professor Grenier. I'm doing my best. No- nonetheless, in this sort of area, Ben Novak, you are keen on the passenger pigeons revival or something close to it. Could you tell us why that would be a good thing?
3: Well, yes, depending on, on who you ask, I'm I'm overly keen... I think the thing to get across before I even say why we want a passenger pigeon back is that uh, the very reason that we want to re- to revitalize the ecology of a passenger pigeon is the same reason why people have been doing certain modes of conservation for over a 100 years. So the idea of putting wolves back in Yellowstone, elk in Michigan, uh, beaver in Scotland, I mean, these are all efforts to reintroduce dynamic ecological effects. And that's the goal of the Passenger Pigeon Project. It's really nothing new. And that's where this term de-extinction throws people, is that this really is not new. So we see a need for a particular ecology in the eastern United States. And this is not my opinion coming through. Uh, You can read forestry papers and all kinds of research. It's all there. In the last hundred years, we've had more forest, But the disturbance process that makes that a mosaic forest, that makes it these early successional habitats and lots of different habitats, that force has gone away. Things like fires have been suppressed and storms are too erratic to produce it. And so now we have this very closed canopy that's shifting from oak to maple and it's becoming more monoculture and a lot of species in the eastern United States are now becoming rare, despite the fact that they've had more habitat now than they've had for the last 200 years and the idea of bringing in the pigeons is we can go out with chainsaws and do control burns and we as humans can manipulate and try to create this disturbance cycle which we do at local scales but we just can't spend that kind of money getting up to the biome level forever and we'll create this gardened ecosystem whereas if we bring in a couple hundred million pigeons in the long run They'll kickstart forest cycles the way they used to for the past hundred and seventy-five thousand years.
1: So, just to explain it, you're saying that the passenger pigeon has unique qualities which affected the environment, and you prefer the environment that they created. For some, I don't know why you'd prefer their environment to the one we got now, but anyway, you, you prefer it, and you think that creating passenger pigeons would be good for that reason.
3: Yes. Um. So for for tens of thousands of years, passenger pigeons were essentially the the biological engineer of a patchwork forest system in the eastern United States. And just about every characteristic animal and plant that we think of as Eastern United States species had co-evolved with that and actually adapted to preferring that. So it's the reason I would prefer it is because the species living there that are on the edge right now would prefer it. And you know, it's it's it comes down to a value choice. It's, Do we want to let dozens and hundreds of species more go extinct in the eastern United States as this shifts to a very different ecosystem? Or do we want to keep some of those around and enjoy the biodiverse and productive ecosystem we like? But if we're going to go and steer it away from, you know, caring about all these little animals, about loving them or whatever, and go to a very selfish human reason, a regenerating forest from a human services perspective is one that generates higher photosynthetic output and that of course is carbon sequestration and clean air. So if you want nice air and good climate it's a good idea. Carl Zimmer can you
1: come in with any other reasons I mean one reason that occurs to me is that if humans uh, made a species extinct maybe there's some sort of moral duty to to that species I don't know if that, you can have a duty to something that doesn't exist anymore but to, to, to recreate it Can you give us some other reasons why there would be a benefit in recreating species?
0: Well,
4: I mean, I think that the ecological benefit uh, would be the the key one, that, that, you know, you'd be restoring ecosystems to the way they had been for tens of thousands of years before they were suddenly radically altered by human activity. There's the aesthetic, I suppose, you could, an argument you can make for that, that are just to be blunt, it'd be pretty cool to see a woolly mammoth <laughs> stomping around. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing that. But really, when you take into account the full scope of extinction and what we really need to, to address to tackle that, for me personally, the, those things aren't quite as important. De-extinction uh, is uh, intellectually fascinating. I think that in for some particular species, it might be a good idea. It might do some good. But we are facing a planetary scale mass extinction event we're, we're we're pretty much already entering into it. And it's something that's going to require huge political will to deal with really, really hard problems, actually harder than trying to figure out how to make a woolly man. I
1: see. Mm-hmm. So, so so, what you're saying is that so many species are going extinct, you should worry about that rather than trying to recreate some old ones. Why don't you keep
4: the ones we've got? I don't think it makes sense to treat de-extinction as, as the solution to the our extinction crisis or even for a particularly uh, significant part of a solution. So we're, we're talking about you know losing a substantial fraction of all the species... On Earth, in and within the next few generations. I mean, we're this is this is what we're seriously talking about. Mm-hmm. The factors are things like hunting, pollution, ocean acidification, global warming, turning tropical forests into oil palm plantations. These are the things, and these are the things that we have to address in order to stave off you know, a kind of extinction that we haven't seen for tens of millions of years. That's the real issue. I admire what Ben is doing, and I, you know, intellectually, I, it's incredibly f- fascinating to me. I would hate for people to think that that is anything approaching a solution to this to this global level problem.
1: Yes, and Helen Pilcher, could you sort of go on from there to say yeah. that it might even be, you know, encourage people to think that it doesn't matter that species are going extinct because well, you know what, no. we could just recreate them.
0: Do you know what? I, I sincerely hope that that does not happen, and I would like to think that we have the integrity as a species for that not to happen. But I think Carl's point and is is a really important one. We're in the middle of this mass biodiversity crisis, and I think a key point here is that. We have billions of dollars being spent on conservation every year and we're still losing species. They are slipping through our fingers. Now, nobody involved in de-extinction thinks that de-extinction is the answer. Nobody involved in this science thinks it's okay to let stuff go because we can always bring it back. Nobody thinks that. However, we should be thinking about developing this research to a point where we can make a critical evaluation of the impact it could have. And this is quite a controversial view. One of the the kind of things that I concluded from doing the research for my book is that if conservation has at its heart maintaining levels of biodiversity and keeping ecosystems healthy, de-extinction, judiciously chosen, could be a step towards that goal. And one of the key points, I think, in favour of de-extension is that we have this suite of techniques that we can apply not just to species that have disappeared, but to species that are in desperate trouble. So we have the ability to sequence genomes cheaply and efficiently. There's an amazing bird in New Zealand called the kakapo. It's a green, flightless, dumpy parrot, and there are only 154 left. Every single bird is having its genome read. And from that, they will be able to help steer who breeds with who and give the kakapo a chance of success. I call that de-extinction. Richard might call it a lower risk but conservation dependent, this category from the IUCN that disappeared. We can apply these techniques to the northern white rhino. There are two proposals currently with the US Fish and Wildlife Service concerning the black-footed ferret. One is to use this suite of techniques to edit genetic diversity back into the ferret and the other one is to edit its genome so it becomes resistant to the particular disease that is driving it to extinction. For me, this is the heart of de-extinction, that it has at its core these broader values, not just bringing back life from the dead, but really helping to save the life that we have on this planet currently that will disappear if we just keep doing what we're doing already, and that is not to kind of put down the hard work that conservationists do there are some amazing initiatives okay. out there but it could help maybe
1: so i'm going to put to professor grenier and carl zimmer whether what you've just heard from helen pilcher is a good idea or a bad idea in your view why don't you start professor grenier
5: I'm afraid I really do disagree. I think the moral hazard, that is the problems that we will engender by letting the mistaken message get out that we can bring species back from the dead is going to do far, far more harm than the benefits that the technology will bring. I'm... I'm, absolutely certain that across the world there are conversations between landowners and legislators between conservationists and legislators where we're already seeing people say I think it matters much less that species go extinct, then this particular land use happens. And if the mistaken idea gets out there that extinction is not forever, we lose a profoundly important argument for keeping some form of biodiversity and natural habitat around in the face of the next 100 years. It, it's a, For me, it's a very serious problem, and it could be avoided simply by talking about de-extincted species, not as de-extinct, but as fantastic new tools for habitat management.
1: I want to move this on. I'm, I'm nervous of doing this.
4: I, I just wanted to say that... I mean, Sorry, just yes. This is I just Carl. Wanted to this ch- is, this Carl. is Carl. And I just wanted to jump in to say that I, I can imagine a very tragically ironic situation where a group of scientists worked really, really hard to, let's say, bring a species back from extinction or to, to use these tools to, you know, for years and years and years, huge amounts of effort to restore a, a population... And then for its habitat, the place that it needs to survive to disappear, perhaps climate change will basically move its habitat hundreds of miles away. And so all that effort is for naught because there were these bigger issues. It's like trying to tune your radio while the car is going off a cliff. Like, you know, there are priorities here that we need to think about we've we're spending an hour talking about de extinction i hope you will spend you know many more hours talking about these uh really huge threats to millions and millions of species on this planet
1: right because presumably the reason some of them are extinct is because their environment's gone so if you bring them back then they'll still have that problem
4: but their their habitats are changing right now and they are continuing to change because we're dumping lots of carbon into the atmosphere Like, that is one of the major things that we actually have to deal with to prevent many, many thousands of species from going extinct. Ben Novak.
3: The danger in how we talk about this is not that this is restoring some idea of the past, because environments change, ecosystems change. Uh, This this whole conversation really reflects just a very poor understanding of ecology throughout the, the broad public. It's really about confronting what are the challenges now. And when you look at any ecosystem... You're going to be faced with thinking about something that's extinct today. You're going to be faced with thinking about things that are rare and declining, and what Helen brought up uh, with the black-footed ferret, which are which are revive and restore projects. This you know broad sense of using these technologies for conservation, from sequencing genomes all the way to engineering disease resistance. These are what we like to call now uh, they're the suite of kind of next generation genetic rescue technologies, in which we're encountering intractable problems in nature and if we want to have healthy ecosystems we're going to have to be interventionist and we're going to have to be applying these brand new technologies and we're working very hard at revive and restore to get conservationists aware of how cheap some of these technologies are and and what they can use them for just even the basics of applying environmental dna analyses to know where your animals are where they've been and how to track them Sequencing the genomes of a population just to know how they're responding to things like climate change, all the way to confronting a disease that's exotic, in which case there is a premier example. And the American chestnut tree here in the United States is slated to be the first genetically engineered wild species to be put back into nature for a conservation purpose. And that started, you know, really forethought by Bill Powell at SUNY over 20 years ago. And so this is, this is all very promising if we think of nature as dynamic, and if we think of the major challenges that we're looking at.
1: But Helen Pilcher, aren't I right to bring up the examples of these sort of things that have gone wrong? Like I think it's the cane toad in Australia or something, and someone thought it was a good idea to, to, to introduce it, and 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 then. Yeah, it had disastrous consequences. I mean, that could happen with all this technology, couldn't it?
0: Well, do you know what it could? I mean, the points that we've made across the board reflect the uncertainty, and we need to progress very slowly and cautiously. The IUCN, the organisation that I mentioned earlier, have drawn up a paper recently helping us to kind of get our heads around when we're thinking about and i apologize for using the word de-extincting something what should we be thinking about and they say things like you know could it become an invasive species could it be a pest could it be a disease carrier could it be harmful to humans or their livelihood uh you know is there somewhere for it to go has its ecosystem changed beyond recognition and really crucially do we know for sure what drove it to extinction the first time round? Because suppose it was disease, and suppose that disease is still out there, like it is with a black-footed ferret currently. You know, we go to all this trouble to bring back a particular animal, only to find that it goes extinct all over again. So these are the kind of issues, and there is an emerging framework in place to discuss these kind of issues, and kind of almost checklist off a starting point for, is it even a good idea to be thinking about this particular animal? Uh, and these are the kind of things we need to be thinking about.
1: I fear asking this question to wrap it up, because you, you all you all have a very dim view of the media. But I wanted to know whether it is ever conceivable that Neanderthals could be brought back.
0: <laughs> well, uh, do you want me to chip in first? I have a whole Go chapter for... on this in my book. Oh, right. right the for... rather alarming thing is, and I, I discussed this at length with a brilliant professor from Harvard University called George Church, who's one of the guys who's trying to make a, a woolly mammoth hybrid. Yeah, it will become technically possible. But it's a terrible idea for lots and lots of reasons. It's uh, basically human cloning. It's immoral. It's it's unethical. And there's absolutely no point because you would be giving birth. Somebody, something would be giving birth to this inadverted commas Neanderthal baby that would grow up in a 20th century world. And and the one thing we've learned from looking at their remains littered through the fossil records is that they weren't some Savage, idiotic thugs like the Victorians thought of. Neanderthals looked after their disabled, they made some quite sophisticated tools for the technology, and they lived in harmony with their environment. They didn't trigger catastrophic biodiversity loss. So they were quite smart cookies, and arguably, if you brought one up as a thought experiment, you know, if you think about bringing one up in today's world, it just wouldn't be so different. It wouldn't be the loincloth-wearing freak that people might like to see. This
4: is Carl, and it's also worth pointing out that Neanderthals didn't quite go extinct because oh, um, you know, all non-Africans have about a couple percent Neanderthal DNA in their genomes. There's actually a lot more Neanderthal DNA on Earth now than... 40,000 years ago when the quote-unquote real Neanderthals became extinct. We, our ancestors interbred with Neanderthals and have carried along their DNA till today. So a bit of backbreeding, maybe.
0: <laughs> Carl, have you had the genetic test? I had I, a genetic test to see how Neanderthal I am. Did you do that?
4: I did indeed. I actually was able to break it down to, to individual genes, which was which was very interesting. Yeah, mm. I, I'm getting to know my inner Neanderthal quite well.
0: Yeah.
4: Ben
1: Novak.
3: You know, our, our definitions and, and this, I think this is what we've really drilled down on in the hour is, is it's these definitions that matter. And everyone on the phone call today is partly Neanderthal. And so, you know, is the Neanderthal completely extinct? Well, from an allele perspective, that's a no. And, you know, it's these arbitrary lines we like to draw in nature are problematic, you know, life has been evolving for three billion years on this planet, and it's always been different. Human beings are different today than they were ten thousand years ago. I'm different epigenetically than my mother and father, yet I don't consider myself a different species. And when we think about these things like de extinction and and you know the umbrella of genetic rescue, we've got these guidelines. They're not emerging guidelines; they're established based on reintroductions. Uh, I think the the fear that we have as Revive and Restore is really how people think in context of these newly emerging biotechnologies. They think that it's brand new and there's no basis for making judgment calls. Whereas we have over a hundred years of good results and bad results of different practices in conservation to look at and build a structure for critical thinking. And that's what we're really doing when we think about black-footed ferrets or passenger pigeons and their environments is coming down and thinking critically about those questions, about disease vectors, about how the environment has changed, about how this organism interacts with what's left in its environment, and what is the central problem we care about. And there's a really great framework for these. There's a lot of publications about it. Philip Seddon at the IUCN Council, who's made these, these guidelines with a team of people, they're all rooted in very real efforts happening even in people's backyards as we speak.
1: I'm going to thank you all, and just apologise for the oversimplifications that I've <laughs> in- inflicted on you all. And thank you very much for trying to uh, explain this, and I think you really you've, d- you've done a very good job of that. Uh, Richard Grenier, we haven't heard from you for a while. Do so you just want to make a final point?
5: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Just just to agree absolutely with uh, with Ben there, this is a profoundly important thing to think clearly about there is existing prior art in this both in introduction biology the, the IUCN document that Helen referred to is a very good one I'd also just point out that very similar debates are being had in geological engineering for climate change where again you have this possibility that a great technological fix facilitates people doing more bad things and I absolutely love the phrase genetic rescue it is such a powerful term. It's positive, it's forward thinking, it's about technology and making tools to make a better world, and it's so much better than de extinction.
1: How could you not comment on this programme? NewsHour.Extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at bbcnhextra. Uh, if you just got halfway through it and you want to hear the rest of it, get the podcast, BBC NewsHour Extra Podcast, one hour, one topic every week. Uh, Tremendous panel. Thank you very much for your contributions. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.